City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, performance. indeed to welcome you to the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located on 42nd Street, the heart of Broadway. It's where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all come together to present the magic that is live theatre. And from this street, and from Broadway, and from New York City, the best that is on the theatre goes out across the country. And from the regional theaters and the university theaters across the country come their very best to feed and to nurture the New York theater. We are perhaps the American Theater Wing best known for its Tony Award. But although it is a most prestigious and a marvelous award that is given each year in the theater industry to mark the excellence of achievement in the theater, in the art of theater. It is not given for the longest run or the best box office or the most rave reviews. It is because these people who receive the award or are nominated for the award have achieved that degree of excellence. It was named after Antoinette Perry, and she was a, a writer and a producer, director, and an actress. She believed in training for the program, and that's what the American Theatre Wing believes in. And some 50 years, after the inception, we are still doing the things that she planned for the wing. They're not only these seminars, but a hospital program. We go into hospitals, into nursing homes, into aid centers. And performers from Broadway shows and cabaret, they go in and they offer their services and they bring a brief moment of magic into the institutions. And then there's our Saturday Theater for Children program. And this is a program that speaks for itself. On Saturday mornings, children line up to see live theater in their own schools, in their own neighborhoods. And parents and teachers alike contribute their services to the schools. So it is a community effort as well. And this is really the basis of the wing. We service the community through the theater. One step. Further on for Saturday Theatre is our Introduction to Broadway program. And it's a new program. In its first year, tens of thousands of high school students have come to the Broadway Theatre. They have come to see Cats and Grand Hotel and Once Upon an Island and Miss Saigon and Les Mis. And this is done in cooperation with the New York City Board of Education High School Division and with the producers, the wonderful generosity of the producers who have made this possible. They've enabled us to have tickets that give to the students at a minimal price, 
And the wonderful thing about it is that the students buy the ticket, pay for the ticket themselves, come on their own. They make a commitment to go to the theater. And then we have a post-theater discussion with the performers afterwards. And that is done not only as an added carrot to what they have seen in the theater, but so there are role models for them to look to, to see that there is, there's a performance and there's music and there are the people that do the lights and, and all kinds of things that they can look to for jobs in working in the theater. And then these seminars, which are most important and interesting and exciting kind of program for us, in which we talk about what it is to work in the theater. It's, an, it's to bring you behind the scenes of how to work as a performer, as a playwright director, and as a producer. And the people that come to these seminars have given of their time and their efforts and their concerns for the theater. And I am proud indeed to be able to have the caliber and knowledgeable people that we have on the seminars. They are chaired by Jean Dalrymple, who is a producer, has been a director, has been an actress, and is an author. And she is a member of the board of the American Theatre Wing. And Brendan Gill, who is a member of the board of the American Theatre Wing as well. And he is author, he's wit, he's writer, and he's a man that just loves the city and is a good citizen and loves the theater. And I'm going to turn this over very quickly to Jean and to Brendan so they can introduce our panelists. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theater Wing, and I welcome you all once more. Thank you. It is with particular pleasure that I introduce Harry Groner, who is down at the end of this line, <laughs> and whom I first saw in a beautiful restoration of Oklahoma in a more or less minor role, but he was very good, and I told him that he would soon be a star, and I'm happy to say today he is starring in, what's the name of your wonderful <laughs> I always do that. <laughs> I knew perfectly well, but I thought you'd like to catch me. Um, anyway, it says on my card that he's well known to TV audiences for his role in the hit series Dear John, but he's equally at home in Shakespeare and musicals we know about. He previously appeared on Broadway in Cats and as George in Sunday in the Park with George. Mr. Groner. <laughs> Next to him is Tracy Pollan, who doesn't like to be called Tracy Pollan, I <laughs> discovered. Uh, it says Miss Pollan has appeared extensively in movies and TV and is well known for her role in the hit TV series Family Ties. She has been a frequent performer off-Broadway as well and made her Broadway debut in Pack of Lies. She is currently starring in Neil Simon's Jake's Women with Alan Alda in the role of Molly at 21. <laughs> <laughs> 
Miss Powell. And then someone who needs no introduction, I'm sure, Glenn Close. And Miss Close, of course, we don't have to talk about her because we all know <laughs> how she is. <laughs> Uh, she was last seen on Broadway in Tom Shepard's The Real Thing. That's Miss, not true. No, I don't think the it is either. The benefactors. Yeah, it, it doesn't hear. Uh, somebody must rewrite these things for us. <laughs> um, and anyway, Miss Close has come back to the stage in Death and the Maiden, starring on Broadway. That's well-deserved. Miss <laughs> Close. Right next to me is an old friend, Roscoe Lee Brown. What a wonderful man. What a wonderful actor. Mr. Brown launched his theater career during the inaugural season of the New York Shakespeare Festival in Central Park. After a continuing string of dramatic successes in America and Canada, he is now on Broadway as Holloway in August Wilson's Two Trains Running. Mr. Brown. Uh, what Jean called the end of the line might also be the beginning of the line. Uh, and when she said about Glenn not needing any introduction, Jean and I are the only people on this platform who need any introductions. <laughs> but I, I did have a friend who was introduced once by saying he needed no introduction. He said, well, introduce me anyway. I like to hear it. <laughs> so Richard Dreyfuss is the head of the line on this side, starring in Death and the Maiden. Uh, a masterly skater about whom I want to say something later, after the introductions, Richard Dreyfuss. <laughs> and next, Lynn Redgrave, the founder of the National Theatre of Great Britain, who is starring in Ibsen's The Master Builder now in, the, in our great new theatre company at the Belasco, Lynn Redgrave. <laughs> And, and Alan Alder, starring in Jake's Women, uh, Neil Simon's new play. Uh, Alan himself, being a writer, is starring as a writer, which makes a very interesting subject matter, at least to me. He is also by far the best-dressed actor-writer of my what? time. What a strange figure he is. And then right next to right. And, and right next to me, Jody Benson, who my card says is familiar to moviegoers as the voice of Ariel in Disney's The Little Mermaid. I'm sorry to say that she's not familiar to me in that role, but she is familiar to me as uh, having been in the Ashman Hamlish production of Smile and is now on Broadway as Polly Baker in Crazy For You. Gene, <laughs> unless you... Uh, insist on asking the first question. I wanted to say uh, of, of uh, Richard uh, Dreyfus when I was speaking to him in our infinitesimal green room just over there, I said, uh, to be both polite and accurate, when were you last on Broadway? And he said, I was on Broadway for one night in 1983. Everybody dreams of being on Broadway for more than one night. Richard, what was the occasion? 
Uh, it was a play called Total Abandon. It was... Um, Abandoned by the producer. The author led with his chin on that one. And it was a, a drama about a man who beat up his two-year-old child. And ultimately, we find out that he beats him to death. This was a, made for a really happy evening in the theater. And anyway, it deserved to close, and it closed, and it became an anecdote in my dinner party conversation. <laughs> What I was referring to in, in the skating was in, in a movie, Once Around, was it called? Yes. Once Around, in which Richard skated so beautifully, and it's hard to believe it, but he also somehow skated poignantly. Now, apparently, you learned to skate, and maybe the poignancy was in part the fact that you learned for that role. Yeah, I think it's fear. <laughs> fear and uncertainty. Uh, yeah, I, I learned, I was learning at at the time that we were shooting that, those scenes. Mm -hmm. And so, since the, the character never had to be an accomplished s skater, he simply had to be enthusiastic about it. <laughs> I felt myself, it was okay to throw myself into the role, which is exactly what happened on numerous occasions. <laughs> Can I ask him a question now? By all means, yes. <laughs> You're permitted to do so. Thank you. Uh, how did you ever get started in this so-called business? When I was nine years old, I was, we had just moved to Los Angeles, and I, I was at the kitchen table, and I turned to my mother, and I said, I want to be an actor, and she turned to me and said, don't just talk about it. <laughs> and How wonderful. I, I got up from the table, and I went down to the Jew Westside Jewish Community Center, which was two blocks away, and I auditioned for a role in some of the children's theater, and I s never stopped. Isn't that wonderful? It's the first story of that kind we've heard. Really, that's story, terrific. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, the other one was that I was running from a murder charge and went to the farm. <laughs> you know, I wound up in the theater and Roscoe found me. Well, you must have begun even earlier than that in the, coming from a family of actors. So one might think, Brendan, but, but wrong. So. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. I was the one member of uh, my family. This, uh, I'm a member of or the fourth generation of my particular family of Actons, and there is now a fifth generation with my oldest daughter, my sister's two daughters, and my brother's daughter, who recently starred with, with Alan in the West End in, in um, what did you star in? Our, Never mind. Our Town. Our Town, right. Um, <laughs> but I didn't want to be an actress uh, because I was very shy, and even though I was around actors and ought to have known better since all the actors I knew were very shy, and lost their shyness when transforming themselves into other people. My father being, the late Sir Michael Redgrave, being perhaps one of the shyest people of all, and yet able to transform himself to the brilliance and edification of audiences everywhere. Uh, it wasn't until I was 15 and a half, and in my family that was really late, so until I was about 26, I would say, I decided, very late in life, I decided to be an actress. And they would say, how old was that? And I would say 15 and a half. And one day, when I was having a midlife crisis around the age of 62, I said to myself, um, I age so well, you see, you have no idea what, what age I am. Um, I said to myself, it's, I can't tell that story anymore. Fifteen and a half is very young to know what you want to do, and I guess it was. I fell in love with the performance of Dorothy Tutin, a British actress, uh, in Twelfth Night, directed by Peter Hall. And I saw it at Stratford-on-Avon, I saw it 17 times. And I determined to be an actress, and I was. And you are. Thank you. <laughs> but what happens, you see, so often you hear as people in all uh, their metiers always complain about, oh, God, I hope my 
child isn't this or that. And yet here we have generations. And, and, and uh, Alan, same way with you? Yeah, my father uh, did not want me to be an actor. He was an actor. <clears throat> he wanted me to be a doctor because that's what he had always wanted to be. And, and nevertheless, he brought me out on stage for the first time when I was six months old. He was working in burlesque, <laughs> and he brought me into a, as a joke to the other actors. He brought me out on stage in a schoolroom sketch. And, and I was on stage with him at various times all through my childhood. But he still tried to talk me out of being an actor. And I did the same thing with my children. Mm -hmm. I tried to talk them out of uh, becoming actresses, and then I wrote parts for them in movies. <laughs> 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 it's, it's, a, it's a genetic quirk in my family. <laughs> and then you got to be a doctor in that wonderful That's series right. that I you got, did for so long. I got to be a doctor, and I wrote him a part uh, as a fellow doctor. So uh, oh, on MASH, in MASH that we was. acted together, and we both got to be doctors together. And thank <laughs> God for humanity. That that's the only doctor we ever did. <laughs> no operations were actually performed. No. 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 What about on this side? Uh, Youthful. Well, I was going to come back. I was, oh, going, oh, I was trying to be something, you see. <laughs> oh, there you are. No good deed goes unpunished. Uh, but who began earliest on this side? You can't beat six months. My folks were, were both in show business, and so I, I grew up with it. I guess um, it really sort of started around 12. I uh, wanted to be a dancer very, very badly. My father was a a concert pianist and my mother studied opera but they both danced my father loved uh, Fred Astaire there are wonderful pictures of my dad and these, these poses that look just like just like Fred Astaire and tails and things and he he tapped and stuff uh, uh, my mother loved to tap um, and I wanted to I wanted to dance and I would watch the the variety shows on television. I'd see those dancers and I'd say, that's what I wanted to do. And then, of course, West Side Story came out and that was so influential for so many of us who ended up dancing that I said, that's what I want to do. And so I went into class when I was about 12. And then the acting bug hit my last year in um, junior college. I did a musical version of The Thirteen Clocks that was put together by the English department, the drama department, and the music department. And that was actually the first musical. <laughs> but, um, and that, that really did it. And the first year of high school was the Diary of Anna Frank, and that then solidified it and, of course, created the problem of, of where do you place your focus? Do you put it in the dance or do you put it in the acting? And that's been a problem ever since. But that's when it started. <laughs> but a, it's a proper problem. It's a great right. problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Riddled with guilt, I return to television. <laughs> <laughs> now you feel bad. That's right. <laughs> how did it all begin? Um, I guess I started singing when I was about five and, uh, and then started singing in choirs and things like that. But it wasn't probably until I was in college that I started doing actual shows and performing in the summers and, and during school. And then, uh, you know, packed the bags and moved to New York and, and started hitting the audition pavement. So I guess I was about, you know, five or six when I started singing. But now television never shut up after that. I'm so interested in the fact that lots of young people have their first thought about acting from watching wonderful things take place, like an old movie of Fred Astaire, and say, "Gee, that's for me." Uh, that didn't affect you in the same way. Well, actually, it didn't. I come from a small town in Illinois, and um, TV was not a big part of our life. And 
there's nobody in our family that is involved with the arts at all, so I don't have these great stories about my mom and dad or anything, <laughs> but um, uh, it just, uh, it's something that I just really wanted to do, mm -hmm. and, and I think it really, for me, it started with singing, and uh, I started dancing when I was about 13, and uh, then by the time I got to college, I just, I realized that's what I wanted to do. And the hometown folk were not too excited about that, because uh, I was going to be a lawyer. And uh, so I wanted to go to law school. And I had been saving up until that point, uh, but I always knew that I could, you know, hold back and, and maybe be an actor later on. But then all of a sudden, just made that decision and, and moved to New York, and family was very What a wonderful shocked. decision in every way. <laughs> well, I'm grateful for it. Lawyer. Now. Let's yeah. hear from Ms. Pollan. She's been sitting there quietly for yes. a long time. I can't do anything like Tina. Miss Pollan, speak up. Well, I guess I was kind of the old one going. And I, I, it was after high school. I was 17. Oh, God. Um, yeah. <laughs> I just couldn't decide what it was I wanted to do. I just went to a high school in New York that was very, um, had a really strong theater program, and it was something I became interested in, and they encouraged that. And um, Which so right high school after, was that? Dalton, here in New York. Where? And what's that? Where is it? It's on 89th Street. She refuses to mention the dreaded Upper East Side or dreaded a private Upper school. Side. <laughs> no, Please. she was co-ed. <clears throat> and so I did, I was in um, plays all through high school and then just sort of the natural progression after that. Mm -hmm. And Glenn, let's have whatever sordid sources you have. Sordid, oh. Uh, I wish we have were. a small town in <laughs> Illinois. We have no, I, I grew up in Connecticut. But um, again, TV wasn't much part of our life. Um, and I was lucky enough to grow up in the country and um, to use my imagination. I think about seven years old, I knew that I wanted to be an actor. Really? Yeah. Mm, wonderful. But how did you really start? Did you go to it? Well, agent or I kind of went around about. Um, certain circumstances took over my life. It wasn't really until I reached college um, that I started to act on it. and. I ended up after college. I went to William and Mary, and it had a wonderful, just a liberal arts school. They had a great theater program, yes. and I had a wonderful mentor from that college. And I ended up going to the URTA uh, auditions, and f and for all the uh, nonprofit theaters in the country. And I was hired by the Phoenix Theater when I graduated, and that was the beginning. When did you start here in New York? Seventy-four. Uh, I was in Love for Love, Rules of the Game, Member of the Wedding. That that uh, oh, yeah. the last season the Phoenix had on Broadway was my first yeah. professional. T. Job. Edward is now eighty years old. The wonderful T. Edward now. Right. Yeah, yes. yes. T. Edward. Roscoe. <coughs> what a pity! I have a feeling that I've had a misspent life. <laughs> <laughs> when I realized that everybody started so early. Oh dear God. <laughs> Well, I, of course there was no television when I was a child. There was hardly a crystal set. It's been that long ago. But um, I was having dinner with some friends in 1956. I was already well into my 30s. And I announced, I was working for Shenley Import Corporation as something called the National Sales Representative. And I had the position because I was a runner. That is to say, uh, I ran track. And I think I was about the first of those um, 
world-class athletes who were given jobs because they were athletes and mainly to represent liquor companies. <laughs> and I worked for them for four years. In the end of the fourth year, 56, um, the import company and the domestic company merged. And O'Leary, the president, called me down. He says, well, kid, we're merging. I thought we'd tell you, all you guys, before you hit the papers on Monday. Um, but we have a great, marvelous new job for you. It's, a, it's an exec, and it's great. I said, I've got to think about that. I'll call you tomorrow. And he says, you can't call us tomorrow. Tomorrow is Saturday. So I said, I'll call you Monday. I made dinner, didn't realize I was making dinner without having asked anyone. So I invited three friends, three extraordinary ladies, and they came. <laughs> and one of them said, finally, what do you want to tell us, darling? It's Josephine from Easton. She always says, darling. And I blurted it. I had no idea. I said, well, I was just thinking, tomorrow I'm going to become an actor. <laughs> and I thought they would kill me. <laughs> oh. Well, Joe went out and she brought back three trade papers. Variety, show business, and um, I think it was backstage. It seemed purple, but I don't think backstage is any longer, but it had gossip in it. <laughs> and they, she got them to prove to me that it would be a most unlikely thing for me to do. That she would say, now here's a role, there'd be 20,000 actors up for that one. And stuff like that. You don't know you're black and um, you're not a kid. So um, I saw, I did this, it was page 25, and it said that um, tomorrow, it didn't say tomorrow, but it was the next day. That was the last day for actors to audition for the inaugural season of the New York Shakespeare Festival. And so I went downtown to that little church on the Lower East Side, Henry, I think. And I didn't presume to think I could act, but I knew that at least I had read the literature. And that is why they hired me, because I seemed to speak it and understand it. And Joe was amazed. At any rate, that's how I became an actor. But you had always had an extraordinary voice, and nobody had ever said to you because of your voice that you should be mm. making They said music. all sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> but not singing, for example, do you sing? Well, yeah, sort of, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. no, well, I sang well. in that show. Yeah, that's right. mm. that, that last musical, oh, that right. the only musical I ever did. If you call him, what is that, Marvelous Piece by Brecht. That's not a musical, is it? Well, it's nice to start nearly at the top as you, as you found a way of doing. That's all the better. Yeah. And what was the first play? Julius Caesar. Oh, what did I you was. I played an exotic. I was the soothsayer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because they were going to dispense with a scene between Calpurnia and the soothsayer, I could always. I was returned in the second act as a Pindarus. <laughs> Two very good plays. Yeah. Brendan, can I say something? Yeah, by all means. Thank you. <laughs> it's uh, interesting that almost everyone said, you know, they wanted to be an actor, an actress, six, seven, eight, nine years old. What happened then between that and the time that you're sitting here now? How did you get here mm -hmm. from there, from that? What was the road? Let's Jubilee start with you. What was the road you traveled? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> since you're looking at me, I guess I'll answer. Yeah. Um, um, I went to school. Uh, I went through the regular school system, working within the drama departments there, 
1970, I worked with, uh, I was in uh, junior college and I began working with uh, a repertory company in Santa Maria, California called the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts. And it was one of the few companies, and still is, I think, in this country that does rotating rep. I mean, there's a lot of repertory theaters, but they don't mm -hmm. really practice that. Um, and we did two musicals and three straight plays. And I was initially there for the musicals and later ended up also participating in the plays um, and uh, assisting uh, choreographers and choreographing eventually. Uh, and that's where I got a lot of, I feel, a lot of my very basic training and, and respect um, for the theater. And then I went to, um, to finish, I guess, my, my, my training to the University of Washington, to a training program there for three more years. Um, and after that, uh, after graduation, I think the first uh, job after that was at the Actors Theater of Louisville. And uh, I worked there for a season and then did uh, many jobs at many regional theaters before. So there's a background of constant training, yeah. in a sense, and preparation yeah. for where you are. And then moved here in, in 77. Um, and then Oklahoma, Oklahoma happened in 79. Yeah. Yeah, but I would, be, I would go back and forth. Prior to that, actually, uh, I was at the Seattle Rep and doing, um, it's interesting, going from, um, uh, Benedict in Much Ado to Will Parker, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Switch. Um, but that's... Uh, you were one of the best Will Parkers I ever saw. <laughs> well, and I produced uh, that show, Oklahoma, many times at City Center and was always looking for a good one. I wish I had known you. <laughs> <laughs> but there were no accidents along the way. Some, you, you read sometimes of people having a happy accident of some kind. It just <clears throat> sounds like a real no, discipline it, and hard work all the way. No, not really. Um, what were your accidents? I think Crazy Fee was an accident. Mm -hmm. I think okay. it was a happy accident. How um, did that happen? How did that happen? Mm. What do you say? Um, I was... Um, luckily let go from the series and was available for this and Mike Ockrand and um, Susan Stroman and um, Paul Gemignani they 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 were interested and they they came out to California I was doing a musical at the Pasadena Playhouse called You Never Know Cole Porter musical they saw that um, they still wanted me to read so they flew me back here and I read and um, they wanted me to, to do it, but it really fell in my lap, mm -hmm. more or less. I, I consider that a happy accident. Did you arrive by accident? Yeah, we both did to this oh. production. I think we were both shocked that we're doing it. Mm -hmm. I left uh, New York after I did a production called Smile, and uh, through my friendship with Howard Ashman, I had an audition for Disney's The Little Mermaid. And I had, by up until that point, I had gone to school and pretty much did what Harry did. You know, he did rap, and then... He, you, uh, uh, I moved to New York and 10 days <coughs> later went on the national tour of, of a Broadway show and then just you know kept doing that um, so after I did smile I thought well this is great I'm, I would like to try Los Angeles and uh, in getting the voice of Ariel um, my husband and I relocated so we moved out to LA and became the voiceover person in Los Angeles kept myself pretty occupied behind the mic and did theater on the side and um, Lo and behold, uh, Mike and Stroh and those guys called up and said, are you interested? And we said, 
uh, no, we're not ready to come back to New York yet. We really felt comfortable being in L.A., and, and Disney kept me very busy. And six months later, they called again and said, uh, what about now? <laughs> I said, no, not yet. One more <laughs> month went by, and we were in London, um, where we saw Alan's production of Our Town. And uh, they called up and said, you can stop through New York. Uh, wow. You can <laughs> stop through New York and come in, can't you? So we rerouted our flight and stopped in, and the next day they called and said, we want you to do it, can you move? So we took about six weeks making the decision, <laughs> packing the boxes, <laughs> unpacking the boxes, going back and forth, and finally did it. And, you know, we're just, we're thrilled. I mean, it's been an incredible opportunity getting to work with Harry and, and getting to do such a great piece. I'm, I, it is a very happy accident to be back in New York. I, I really never thought I'd come back. <laughs> It was very settled out there, you know, so, but it's been incredible, and uh, the animation people have been thrilled and have relocated. My work is here in, in New York, and I patch in on the phone, and oh, so it's the best the of Disney. both worlds. You can do yeah. it over the right. phone? Yeah. <laughs> I record Tuesdays and Fridays. Oh, and, you record um, in the studio, but they're mm -hmm. listening to you over there. Right. Yeah. The directors are out there, and they're thrilled that I'm doing this show because yeah. they just... They just think Broadway musical. They're just really excited mm -hmm. about Isn't it. So it's the best of both worlds. You you're one of the yeah. Pardon? You're a particular character. And Ariel, we're doing a, a awesome. television series now. So, oh. and uh, oh. Ariel made her debut album this week. So she's the next yeah. Paula Abdul. With her fins and everything, she's going to have a video. It's really neat. <laughs> <laughs> Disney, Disney is oh, taking wonderful. over the world. Right? Are they? Uh, well, they are. In, in I acting, they are. but also in architecture. And and, and everything. Everybody wants to be employed by Disney. Well, they are an incredible organization. Yeah. They've, they've been very good to me. And all of that is because of Howard Ashman. Mm -hmm. um, he really believed in me to give me that part and smile. And I had done nothing but held a spear in the back of Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know, I held a spear in the back. And <laughs> I was in the ensemble, and, and uh, he gave me a shot doing smile in it. Um, and our relationship has really affected my life. You were standing under a lucky star. <coughs> he's he's a great the time. He's an incredible man. No accidents in your life, Alan? Uh, there were, yeah, a lot of slow accidents. There never was a, a big break. But people always think of this uh, field as being a big break. There were, there were like quantum leaps, but they, they were always prepared for. It's, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer first at about the age of eight. And then I knew about a year later that I wanted to be an actor. But when I finally started to, um, to do something about it, it, was, it wasn't until I was about 16 when I became a, an apprentice in summer stock. And then I finished school, uh, finished college, and at about the age of 20, uh, started looking for work. And that began a process of about eight years mm -hmm. in which I mainly learned how to audition uh, and did, did very little actual acting and, uh, and, and, and couldn't afford to go to acting classes, although I wanted to. So I, I would learn from mentors uh, who I would work with uh, and just mainly by watching. I would, I'd, I'd watch performances, I'd stand in the wings and watch people I admired and I'd watch people rehearse and try to see what they did. But it's interesting. I got very good at auditioning, at cold readings, <laughs> and, which is an art by itself and has nothing to do with acting. <laughs> and, and the awful, the, one of the most 
awful experiences is to be brilliant in a reading, get the job, and then realize you don't know how to act. <laughs> you, know, you, can, you can, I mean, you can do the part right. once, you know, but then to do it every night, it, or to go, or to you to know how to use the rehearsal period, is a, is a, an art all by itself. And the interesting thing is, I, we, before we did Jake's Women, we read it a couple of times in front of audiences about this size, just to see if we all wanted to do the play. And I found that I had not lost the ability to do a cold reading. Because <laughs> I, I only read it once, and then I got up and read the whole play, and it all worked, and it was wonderful. But then struck terror, didn't it? Pardon me? It struck terror, didn't it? Well, it, it, it felt, I felt very comfortable with it. I felt really good about that. Then I wondered, how, uh, you know, now I'm going to go into rehearsal. I wonder what the rehearsal period will be like. Because they hadn't, hadn't rehearsed a play in, in, the, in, the, in the, well, except at our town in London, so I, I already knew by that point. But the interesting thing is, I have found that in the 40 years since I was an apprentice, I actually have learned, I'm very happy to say, how to use the rehearsal period. And I love rehearsing now. I used to hate it because I thought, once you know your lines, what's the point? I, I, was, I, I, I began as a true amateur, you know. I really didn't, I didn't know how to study a part. I didn't really know what it meant, how, how you step-by-step step worked into the character. I would wander the streets at night till 3 in the morning, berating myself because I couldn't be this other person. And, and, now, and now I know how to get into it step-by-step. Step. And it was, it's working now. On, on this play is it, it, it's what I would call a slow acting happy accident because it, it's step by step I've, I've been lucky enough to find the ways to do what I do so that it gives me tremendous satisfaction. I really enjoy every, every bit of it. But of course it's wonderful casting in any event because you are a writer and the hero of the play is a writer and the problems that he confronts our problems that writers. The only time I'm aware that I'm playing a writer is at the beginning of the second act when I'm pacing around trying to think of what to write. Mm -hmm. uh, and that only lasts a few seconds and nobody's looking at me anyway because they're still taking their seats and talking about their, uh, the, the, where they were the night before. And there's a certain lack of interest at the beginning of the second act, I noticed. But, uh, <laughs> but until you start talking, they figure when you start talking they want to pay attention. But, uh, but pacing around trying to figure out what to write, uh, I do uh, exactly the way I do it when I'm actually writing. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the only time that I draw on being a writer, I think, consciously anyway. But then what you draw on unconsciously is much more important. It's a very small area for a writer to live in that you have on stage with an enormous stage, mostly empty, and then the writer's cubicle, there's not much room to pace. I think, uh, you know, a lot of writers uh, deliberately put themselves in cramped spaces. Well, you know probably more writers than I do, but the, the, the writers I know not only put themselves in cramped spaces, but often face away from the window so they won't be distracted by nature, which, which is not something I do. I like to, I get inspired by nature. Yes, at the New Yorker magazine, we all occupy little tiny cubicles, just big enough for the for our uh, typewriter or some daring souls now have word processors, but that's mm -hmm. exceptionally rare. But but it's a uh, it's an oddity in your play to me that the stage is so uh, empty so much of the time. It gives the opportunity for people like Tracy to come running in from a long way off. Right. But, but it's uh, it was a decision made must have been very early on and how you're going to divvy up the space there for you to act in. Well, I was interested when we started rehearsal to see how uh, Gene Sachs, the director, had decided 
before we even went into rehearsal, which was a decision that in fact had to be made before rehearsal because the set had to be designed and built uh, uh, early, early on. So many of these decisions had to be made in his head, where the furniture would be, what the furniture would be like, how the space would be divided three-dimensionally. For instance, we have a lot of catwalks and things like, uh, like that, that where we'll, we'll use the space above the actor's head. Uh, uh, and, and that was all decided intellectually, and we didn't have a chance to experiment with it. Once we knew it was going to be there, then we experimented with how we were going to use it. And it was, it was an interesting thing to see uh, what choices were made way in advance like that. Yeah. Then having, having made those choices, then we had to play around with it to see how we could make the best use of it. And, and that, was, that was an interesting process and sometimes frustrating because we tried everything. Everything we do in that play is the process of trial and error. Mm -hmm. uh, the, no matter how good an idea it seemed at first, we have always tried 10 or 20 other things. Mm -hmm. But the most minor things, like, yeah. uh, like put, put it down and then say the line, or say the line and then put it down. I mean, all with these mind-bending things. Until with first first performance in North Carolina that we were trying to play out, I swear to God, about two thirds of the play, I said to myself, "Do I do this? No, I do that later. No, wait, no, I said, no. Now I'll go. Oh, we did that. No, that's another version. We'll do this version. But but it all settles in after a while, and uh, it's it's very good to it's." My wife once took a, a photography course when she was beginning, she's now a professional photographer, and when she was beginning, she, she studied with a guy who said, when you take a picture, before you take it, travel around the subject 360 degrees, physically walk around it. Don't just imagine what it might be like from another angle. Look at it physically from every angle before you take the picture. And I think that that works in every art. If you physically try other things, other than your first impression, other than your first intuition or instinct or inspiration, you'll test that first inspiration against other kinds of reality. And you might find something even better because the first inspiration is often the stepping off point to something really good. Mm -hmm. And you've got to try a lot of different things. Nature does. That's what, that's what evolution is. That's how we got to this mess we're in. Well, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask, you talked about rehearsal and then getting into actually playing, whether you do this and whether you do it, when you do that. But uh, Richard mentioned something in, when we were talking in the green room about how a, one piece of business came to you, something in the play that you weren't sure in how to do it. And suddenly it came to you and you said there it was almost like I've got it and I, you never thought about it again you just did it and I wondered Glenn can you help <laughs> do you remember the specific business I was talking about but I but I wanted to ask is how much comes from the rehearsal and then how much changes in the play as you begin doing it how much do you add to it what do you put in to it other when you step from rehearsal into playing I think I well I think I found in this you get a piece of blocking, for instance, or a bit of business, and you'll do it mechanically without your synapses connecting. You just do it. You let your body do the work. And then two or three or four or five times down the road, your mind understands why and what, and you can fill it out. Um, there might be, as, as Alan was saying, picking up, a piece of, uh, picking up a glass on or off a line. And three or four performances or three or four rehearsal moments down the line, you'll know why your character can't do it before that line. It has to be on the line or 
but it's just a question of letting yourself I think it's a very good point that Alan was saying to walk around the moment to walk around the character and and and, and a bit of business is the same way we've changed the entrance of this show we've changed the beginning of our show and when we first changed it it didn't breathe it just was now as far as I'm concerned it's immense it, it makes the opening of the show immensely better because I under the, all of the connective tissue works better mm -hmm. but it took us time to just do it you know we had to just walk it it's a difficult play that way I think because you have to overhear things off stage there, there are oddities of that kind that the audience has to believe are possible given the physical set that you're working on and then mm -hmm. with the kitchen around behind and all that so that all had to be worked out in rehearsal very much. But when it was, in the, it was somewhere in the newspapers about a, a slight, in fact, darkening of the play, that Mike Nichols had made some certain changes. Now, in wh how has that happened in respect to what you have done? Well, I think this has been a very interesting exercise because the play was first performed in England. And um, it is a difficult play um, for an actor. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was the only one who hadn't seen the, the performance. I wish I had been able to see it. But what I think has transpired is that we have helped each other, the, the two productions. And mm -hmm. I think um, we have, because we want to make it as best as we can on both sides of the water. So um, I, I think they have put in, I think, all of the, of the uh, changes that we put in which had largely to do with dialogue. Mm -hmm. And we have been experimenting with incorporating some of, some of the stuff that they've done. And I, you know, I love it. It's still a work in progress. And I think any live theater should be yeah. always a work in mm -hmm. progress. And um, I have deep respect for Mike and Nichols and for my fellow actors. And we, you know, um, so it's every night it's like, here we go again. Here we go. <laughs> it's an odd play and a difficult, difficult play because it's a thriller, but at the same time there are profound questions of morality coming up. Well, it's very hard uh, for the audience to, to, unless it's very skillfully done, to understand that morality is the, is the theme and that the thriller is the subject and, and the, the, those things have to be presented with enough force equally. So you, and so each of you, though, it's, it's such a small compass to reveal that much in. It's an extraordinary effort, that part. And it is thrilling, and, and, uh, but it's having a great success, isn't it? Very. So yeah. you can keep on working and working and working. Yes, we <laughs> have that luxury. Now, your set uh, for the two trains running seems to work wonderfully well. Is that true, or you just the make set. it seem... Yeah, the set seems oh, to work sure. wonderfully well. And I have the best seat in the house. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> he comes in through the door with great confidence, sit sits down, down there, the uh, in his booth. Uh, Tony Fannin, I think, did it. Yeah. Well, it's meant to be, a, I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it's meant to be, a, in 1969, a little, I can't call it, it's a diner, isn't it? It's yeah, a, a coffee, coffee shop, shop diner. But a diner, where they sell all sorts of things. And um, it's in a place that's about to be regentrified. What is that, gentrified? Yeah. yeah. Or regentrified. They're going to tear them down. <laughs> and all the houses, they've been condemned, and one fellow owns this somewhat shabby but it's home to the regulars and i'm a regular and it really does work mm. and it's solid so the door opens and closes and with he, authority and he slams that door yeah, i know it really works slams that door and the wall I doesn't always quiver. look at mm -hmm. it i think people think i'm acting no i 
<laughs> I'm always amazed nothing, right. nothing shattered. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> and of course it probably isn't glass, but I'm the last one to find out those things. But when it's, a, it's a very sturdy set. It's uh, uh, Roscoe says he's in that booth very quietly making comments on the accident, talking back and forth. But then little by little he works up to a tremendous climax where he accounts for his ability to have caused his grandfather's death of natural causes. He wanted to murder his grandfather, but he contrives he to see to a natural death. And, but Roscoe ends up natural death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Roscoe is in the middle of the stage going full tilt and the audience just bursts out into applause. It's a tremendous thing. It's a tremendous thing. You wish that you could do it too. <laughs> he probably he, can. Envy prompts everything I say. He probably can. I want to ask Lynn mm. to step into this. What, which area would you like me to step into? <laughs> Setting, lucky chances. What, what would you? No, like? I want you to get into the theater and how you come to what you're doing. Right. Uh, from, from, from lucky beginnings or unlucky beginnings. That's right. Well, just one. I did have a, a, a lucky beginning. I was in drama school at the Central School of Speech and Drama in London. And I was in my third year uh, with one more term to go when a, a brilliant scenic designer, British, called Jocelyn Herbert, whose work some of you may know, she used to work with John Dexter a great deal. And she said, I know that Tony Richardson, the late Tony Richardson, who later became my brother-in-law, but that's a whole other story, um, <laughs> was doing a production of Midsummer Night's Dream at the Royal Court Theatre, a uh, theatre that he had helped found in a way in the early 50s when there was the big change around in British theatre and people stopped running through French windows saying anyone for tennis and actually came on and were real people. And he was part of that renaissance along with, with John Osborne. Jocelyn said to my mother, they're doing a Midsummer Night's Dream, he wants very, very young actors, his whole concept is they should be very young. And Lynn should try out for Helena. Uh, Helena is a great Redgrave family role because, you know, we're all very, very tall. Uh, so we all fit Helena, even the boys can play Helena, I mean, everybody can play <laughs> Helena in my family. So I, like Alan, thought auditions were things that you went for but probably didn't get, but that I should get some experience, and I had no experience auditioning. So I went to the principal of my school and said, I'd like to go and do this audition, of course I won't get it, and I realized I haven't finished school yet, but I won't get it. And he said, no way will you go and do this audition, you haven't finished your training. And then he said rather disturbingly and listed a whole bunch of students who if they had made that request he would think it was appropriate. Pissed off I was. <laughs> so I, I called through to the, to the people who were holding the audition and I said, I can come but it's got to be evening because I'm in drama school. And they said, okay, come. And Tony Richardson, who was divine, said, good, my darling, now just come center stage and do something absolutely marvelous. <laughs> so I did. And obviously it was, it was marvelous enough that he, or, or young enough, or tall enough probably, <laughs> that he then offered me the role. Now I had this dilemma. I'd, first of all, I'd gone to the audition against orders. Now I'd got the part. And I remember a family motto, five generations, you know, work breeds work, you get the job. Job in hand is worth 14 in the audition box, you know. So I, I said to my mother, I got the job. She said, that's great. And I said, but they'd be so upset, what should I do? She said, call your father. Now my father was in Broadway and the complacent lover. And those were the days when the phone lines went under the ocean somewhere. And my father was this brilliant communicator on the stage and this terrible communicator in life. And him on the phone, I cannot tell you the dread of calling my father. Him on the phone meant at huge expense, you would have a pause of maybe five minutes after the question. So with great trepidation, I called, hello, dad, it's Lenny. 
pause, pause, crackle, crackle. Uh, hours, finally, got to the point. Listen, Dad, this is costing a fortune. They've offered me the thing, and it's Tony Richardson, and it's the Royal Court, and it's Helena. And he said, you're too young. Don't take the job. Finish your training. And I hung up the phone, burst into tears, called Tony Richardson, and took the job. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, a little addendum to this. Uh, this was became the first role, job of a great many people who, many of you who, who know and love uh, British artists, it was the first job of David Warner, the second job of Nicole Williamson, it was Ronnie Barker, Colin Blakely, Samantha Egger, um, let me think, uh, myself, my brother, Corin Redgrave, Rita Tushingham, um, oh, we could go on and on. Um, um, who have I missed out? Anyway, every role, they were wonderful. Now, Jocelyn Herbert, the greatest designer in the world, designed the only bad set she's ever done in this tiny, yeah. tiny theater. There was this awful little wooden mound, and we had this awful little cockney fairy from the Corona School of Acting uh, who used to pound onto this thing. She'd go, I've got to hang some dewdrops here. Gillian, <laughs> <laughs> I said one day, have you ever read A Midsummer Night's Dream? She said, no, we didn't do that at my school. <laughs> anyway, we, opened, we thought we were fabulous, and Tony kept saying, darling, come and be a, play it like a giraffe, darling. <laughs> and so I did. And we opened, and Carol Brahms, the illustrious theatre critic for Theatre World, theatre for plays and players, I beg your pardon, wrote, Tony Richardson has given us a Midsummer Night's Dream that is completely different. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's coming. Badly lit, badly directed, badly acted. And that was the good review, as you can imagine. Um, however, by lucky chance, by uh, disobeying my father, we got very poor audiences, the eight weeks limited run was cut to four, um, we would come off and say things like, I got a great laugh as a man up in the upper balcony. <laughs> <laughs> but I got a second job from it, and that was uh, to go to the Dundee Rep and did a couple of plays up there, a rather shaky Porsche in, in, in the Merchant of Venice and a, and a farce. And then out of that Royal Court experience, I got the chance to be on a national tour of something called Billy Liar, where we kept returning to the same terrible theatre in Manchester again and again and again and, it, and the, the guy who played the lead had understudied it for three years and said all the lines out loud but didn't know it so he'd say all your lines you know, <laughs> you, and, you know hello hello billy and he'd say hello pat hello. <laughs> this is my line <laughs> so you're saying my lines he says i'm not he'd understand anyway that's not true. i kept i was very lucky the old work read work did work and i did keep getting things from i, I got my first film break because i auditioned for a film, The Girl with Green Eyes, with Peter Finch and Rita Tushingham. And I auditioned on the set of The Mousetrap, which is still running in London. Can you believe Richard Attenborough was the lead when I saw it? And God knows, and he was a child then. And <laughs> I went, and I got a call back, and I got a call back, and I was so thrilled, I thought I must have been really good. And they, after my audition, where I was reasonably good, they said, we called you back because we'd seen you in the theatre, and we couldn't believe the bad audition you gave the other day, so we thought we'd see you again. So I had a lot of lucky breaks. Sorry, you're not taking a break. No, no, I want to ask Jody. <laughs> Can you give us one quick one before we go to questions? Sorry, I took up too much no, time. You didn't. No, you didn't. Nobody ever takes up too much time. It's just never enough time, that's all. In the last 30 seconds that we have, go ahead. Um, well, I did a lot of waitressing to prepare for. I had long breaks in between jobs, and I would waitress and go to acting school. So, 
And? And now I look back at it and it feels like, well, I did this and then I did this and then I did this. But at the time, there were very long pauses where I wasn't working at all. What were you doing in that long part, other than waitressing? Were you studying? I was were in you school? school. I was in school. And you know, were you working on theater at that time? You were My on... first professional job was on the stage off-Broadway. And then I sort of went, and then I would do something in television, and then a film, and then something on stage again. And so I sort of jumped back and forth between all three. You jumped very well. Now. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to stop now and, and take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to receive questions from the audience and I know they're going to be an awful lot and so just be prepared. One of the things I'd like to talk about is auditions because you just raised that point and to most people it's a horror oh. but uh, apparently you did very well with them. That's my thing. <laughs> okay, don't go far, stand up, stretch and sit right down again. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And this seminar, this panel, is on the performance, what it is to work in the theatre as a performer. And we were talking about the accidents and all the things that happened to you to bring you along the road from when you first started and said, I want to be an actor, I want to be an actress, until being in a Broadway play. And so I'm going to turn this over now to Brendan Gill and to Jean Dalrymple, our co-panelists. And Brendan, will you start right now? I, I will. And uh, Isabel would never forgive me if I were not to ask this uh, most necessary question. Since we're dealing here with theater, theater before our very eyes, uh, I have to ask the conventional question of, of why did you choose to come back to Broadway at this moment after me? these years in this very <laughs> difficult play? Yet, uh, Because of what I read on on the page. Mm -hmm. I thought it was material that was fascinating and very timely and uh, the chance to work with Mike Nichols again and to work with Richard Dreyfuss and Gene Hackman. I mean, you don't say no to something like that. But you had been But it started absolutely with what I read. I, I first heard about it from Mel Gusso's review in the Times and I said, oh, that sounds like a fascinating play. He was reviewing it from London and I, through a friend of mine, got a copy of the script. Mm -hmm. so. And meanwhile, you had been looking at other scripts, or you had been thinking. Well, about no, I had done very. I had done a, a very a short run of a play out in L.A. this past spring um, with Jim Brooks. It was his first uh, effort, or his first directing a play, and he was absolutely wonderful. But I have chosen not to do theater because I have a four-year-old little girl, and I didn't want to say I can't put you to bed for six months. And now I'm saying that, and it's it's you know it takes its toll. It, you know, it's not ideal. Um, so. One has to balance. Twenty years from now, she'll speak of that. Yes, she will. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, a, it was a play that brought you back. To Absolutely. The yeah. Had you wanted to come back to the theater, had you found something before this no. play, would you have come back? It was just. Oh, if I found something that, that yeah. I responded to, yes, I probably would have. Yeah. 
Well, I don't know. It, she it, been because two of years Annie. Because right. of Annie, you know, it's not a great yeah. age to, to, to be away every every night. When you started out and you had to drag somebody as big and heavy as Mr. Hackman on stage, how did you feel? And could you do it? How I feel now. <laughs> it's t it's it's uh it's it's doing its number on my body, I'll tell yeah. you that. If I didn't have that rug to pull him on, I wouldn't right. I would not he's two hundred pounds of solid muscle. <laughs> In the yeah. changes that you both talked about, uh, that you made uh, within the run of the play, does this come about in a natural thing that you realize that it would be a natural movement to do this or a natural response to do that? Or has it been because of the director giving you notes and says I think it would be better if it worked this way. How does this come about when you're into the run of the play? I think both. 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 Yeah. There are times when you, 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 you're working a certain moment and you realize that this isn't right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. It should be something else. And you know what that else is because, you know, there's an old saw in the theater, or at least I believe there is, which is that the writer knows knows best first, the director knows best second, but ultimately the actor knows best. Now that's not written in stone, but certainly at a certain point you have to trust your actor's instincts because they are living those characters and that's what they know. Mm -hmm. And so there are times when you can say very simply, I can't go downstage of that table there. I have to go upstage. Why? Sometimes you can articulate it and sometimes you can't, but you mm -hmm. do know it. The thing that's great about Mike, Mike Nichols is that um, and any great director, as far as I'm concerned, has an objectivity which allows you to be subjective. Because as you go through life, you're subjective, and, and to, to do justice to a character, you have to be fiercely subjective. And, and to have somebody like Mike um, oversee it and, and, you know, balance it, it's, it's wonderful. How much does the audience contribute to you? And a lot. <laughs> a lot. You, you know him every night. You have a different audience with a different personality. And, and, uh, I, I, it's never been, I, this may be heresy or not, I'm not sure, I've never talked about it in public, but it's, it's never been my ambition to repeat the performance every night. I, 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 my ambition is to not repeat my performance every night. My ambition is to work like a pas de deux with Glenn and with Jean and to make it different. And sometimes you, edge, you get to an edge and you go, oh, you can't get that different. Or, and sometimes you, you're do, you, know, you have to not do it for arbitrary reasons. But We have an incredible phenomenon in this show. We have a, a, the house curtain is a mirror and we can see the audience and they can't see us so before the show we stand on stage and we just look at our audience and say, oh, look at her look at her hair oh you know, it's just great because in some ways it's you know uh, it's, i am so spoiled I wish that every show had that. Yeah. The other That's thing, wonderful. we can get all the way down like this. Do you then focus on somebody in the audience? Do you focus no, on what you no, see? No, no, no. Then you forget they're there. No. Mm -hmm. But now, it must be, not to speak for Gene Hackman, but uh, in his role, he has to remain silent for so long. Now, that must be very frustrating for him, or doesn't he express that frustration? <laughs> well, in some ways it's easy, he not to say it. <laughs> but he's there, and he has to evince well, his presence Yeah, I think, I think it's a challenging a part. I mean, I, also physically, he's, he's tied up in a chair for most right. of the play. Thanks and to you, you know, and yeah. you're not tying your Girl Scout or something training. <laughs> I, I was never a Girl Scout. <laughs> 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 I'd like to echo a point that Richard was making about not repeating, even though he thought it might be heresy, not, uh, that it was not your ambition to repeat. 
performance. Like you know, the Ethel Merman syndrome. Yes, of course. <laughs> you and I are not going to sing those songs. <laughs> I, one evening, one afternoon, we were rehearsing here before we went off to um, L.A. The actor who plays Memphis, and he's a splendid actor, Al White. Al entered and began as an explosive moment he has. And um, because I have the best seat in the house, I could observe at him and everybody else, including Lloyd, the director, Lloyd Richards, who is preeminent. If you get the chance to work with him, rush. <laughs> and I saw Lloyd's smile, and I, st I was staying in the character. All I'm doing at that moment is listening to him, but I just saw Lloyd smile. And um, so the scene is finally over. And Lloyd is giving notes. I don't know if you know how Lloyd speaks. He's rather quiet. He speaks quietly. He said, um, what happened? I said, well, I walked in here and I found myself on center stage. And Lloyd said, no, you have to remember, this is your restaurant. You weren't on center stage. You were somewhere centrally located in your restaurant. <laughs> and you're going to tell Holloway all this stuff. I'm, my character's Holloway, and I'm sitting over here. He said, but you know, you, you came from someplace. Where, downtown, was it? He said, yes. And, I, and they really weren't going to give me the deal I wanted. And I said, well, how'd you get back over here to this place? Well, I, I started to take a bus, but I knew I'd scream at the people. I was so mad. <coughs> And then I started to take a taxi, and I knew I'd cuss out the driver. I was so mad. And I said, so it took you a while to get here. And finally, you get to the place that you own, and you explode, because it's your place. There's not matter about these fellows. And then he put it in simple acting terms. He said, you know what you were trying to do? You were really brilliant earlier when we ran through this this morning. You were trying to repeat what you did, weren't you? And he said, oh, yeah. But Al said, yeah, as though, isn't that what you're supposed to do? And Lloyd said, no, you must, actors must not try to repeat. They must try to rediscover. Mm -hmm. And if you do rediscover, you really, well. Mike said, Mike said one day, when we were talking about a given moment, he said, he said, I will never, he, I never have to hear the same reading from you ever on a given line. He said, because one, the time will come when you will relax into the uh, to the point where you where you can let the lines and the character be you yeah. i'd never heard it put that way not i became the character but where the character became us and we could then then there's a, a kind of mobility of of um of attributes where we know for instance in terms of our relationship there is love support uh caring fear in various degrees and those degrees will change in right. any given night and they should but as long as they're there and you can you know we play we play within them and not go into other ones that we don't that and don't it never know. matters at all how you feel all the actors to do is the work and they'll do all the feeling mike doesn't like acting <laughs> yeah mike doesn't, doesn't like, like acting. when you're acting. remember you said the other night you said that you've done some of your finest work when you were tired and you never thought that you could get through the evening mm -hmm. And it was when we were all so relaxed. We're not thinking. We're not thinking. Yeah, yeah. We, we, have we a just get back time. to listening and looking at each other and listening. Yeah. And that's yeah. what that's what I was going to just say is that we our our performance every night is is, uh, is I would say from pretty different to very different. Mm -hmm. Although it's always within 
the limits that we worked out with the director. I mean, uh, in fact, he came back after a couple of weeks, uh, having been away, and was happy that we had found so many new things we were doing so differently, and that he, he said, and that improvisational uh, feeling is w what I, I hoped you would have. And, and, and we're, 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 but what we get it from, the way we get that freshness, that aliveness that we all, as well as you, aspire to, and I, and I, and I, so I'm, and I was very glad to see in London, when I worked in London, Mm -hmm. in, in our town. Every actor in that company looked for freshness each night. They, they hadn't figured out a performance at home that they just ran off in front of the audience. They were looking to find, discovered each night. And the way we go for it in our play, I think, is through relating. Mm -hmm. the, we, we, are, oh, we, we spend a lot of time before the show and at intermission getting together and just talking about yeah. us, about our lives. And that, we carry that on stage with us. That, that, that togetherness, and we're, when we look in each other's eyes, I get my performance from Tracy's eyes. And, yeah, and you it's, feel, you sense a history. So save some of this. I'm sure that the audience is going to ask some of these very same questions. We'll just keep talking. You want to come on now? <laughs> <laughs> we have the Secrets. first question. And I have a question about differences. For Miss Redgrave and Mr. Alder, the difference between performing in England and performing in New York and for Mr. Groner and Ms. Close, who have performed in both musical comedy and in straight plays, the difference between performing and preparing for each. That also can go for Mr. Alder, who did the apple tree. Thank you. I wouldn't mind addressing the, the English-American audience question, which uh, Alan has just come from England to. I would say after uh, many, many years of performing in America, and recently returning to London to perform, having not appeared on the stage there for many years, the thing that I was again reminded of is that an American audience responds. They let you know if they like it, they really let you know. If they don't like it, they cough, they maybe leave, they talk. But you know, the British audience is just like the Brits. And I can say it because I am one. It's like, it's all a fine front. And I tell you, the best audiences we had for three sisters in London with my sister and my niece Gemma, who worked with Alan, the best were when the American tourists were in. And when we got these wonderful responses of both laughter and tears, we said, but there's Americans in tonight. And sure enough, there yeah. always were. I have to say, if, if I was given a choice of a room full of Brits and a room full of Americans, I'd take the American audience every time. Here, Tell here. me, what about Broadway Theatre as compared to London and, and New York? And did you come back for, to the stage because of the chance of working in, in a repertory area. Oh, well, I, I never company. left the stage. The Master Builder and Little Hotel on the side of my sixth and seventh play in the last two years. I work in the theatre all the time, not always in New York. Uh, but I certainly would like to say that I'm, I'm very grateful to Tony Randall for getting his lifetime dream of the National Actors Theatre mm -hmm. going. And although we've had a, a season that not everybody has approved of altogether, we've tried very hard to present three difficult, great, interesting plays and um, it's also shown all of us I would like to say for my colleague Marianne Plunkett that she's about the finest actress working in America today. Yes, my name is Maureen Jahan and I'm an actress and a dancer and I have a question for Miss Close. Uh, I'd like to know if you have to make special readjustments in order to switch from television to film and to theater. Yes, you definitely do. Um, 
Yeah, it's all makeup. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, just technically speaking, theater to me is really the essence of the craft of acting. You have to know how to project your voice so that everybody hears. You know have to, how to project an emotion so, because you don't have a camera going into your eyes. And um, so that's what's so great about, you know, coming back to theater is you come back to, to the basics of your craft. Um, when I first, my first film was The World According to Garp, and I was very nervous because I knew, having done 10 years of stage acting, I didn't want to seem stagey. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to know what to do with all my energy, mm -hmm. because you, you really, you know, it doesn't work necessarily on camera. Um, so it did take me a while to adjust. To me, it's about basically where you put your energy. My name is Paul Williams. I'm an actor from Dallas, visiting up here. I'm also head of a comedy trio, cabaret trio, based in Dallas. So I have a question, basically for Mr. Alder, Miss Redgrave, uh, having seen you in several comedic things. You were talking about going from audition to performance. How much do you find that your script, per se, or your persona changes once you get an audience? Because then you can see what they're going to react to. Do you find that once you get an audience, you start rewriting a lot of stuff in your head? Uh, well, you don't rewrite anything when you're in a Neil Simon play. <laughs> uh, the performance does change with the presence of an audience, and I think that's true for all actors. Uh, and it's not just uh, in comedy, it's also, I think, uh, when you're in a, in a, in a dramatic uh, stretch of writing, if you it, when you first become aware that people are actually listening to you tell this story, uh, you, 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 you organize it a little differently sometimes, I think. Um, it, it's, uh, the, 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 there are all different ways of uh, being aware or not aware of the audience that various actors use to, to be able to concentrate on their work. But I had a lot of experience in, in improvisation in, in cabarets, which I guess is similar to your experience. And, uh, uh, I learned to concentrate by including everything, including the audience, including the exit signs and the scenery, and uh, and, and and I just found it was more comfortable that way. But but I do find that the presence of the audience, to answer your question, does uh, change a little bit the way I do it. Hi, my name is Mike Salzano, and I'm an amateur actor, very much inspired by Mr. Groner and Ms. Benson. And I was wondering, what are your inspira who inspires you, and who gives you advice on which roles to take? Yeah. Boy, who gives you advice? Um, I don't, my wife helps uh, decide. Uh, I don't know if there's anyone that really gives advice. I guess your agent helps a little bit, but, uh, um, but who inspires, my lord, for this particular musical it would be all those wonderful MGM musicals that that mm -hmm. that we know uh, that's the inspiration has been for me for this um, since you're like this uh, those people up there that 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 make that magic and and to have the chance to try to recreate that to try to try to make that happen up there for the audience as well as for yourself is uh, what inspires me but who advises me I Thank you. I don't think anybody. <laughs> My name's Dorothy Gannon. Actors often say that they um, just look for good material when they're choosing parts. But if you have the choice between a good new play or a play that's good, that's been done before, how do you decide which one to do? You mean a classic? Mm -hmm. 
But depends on which um, depends on which producer asks you. Depends a lot on who you're going to work with. Too. You're looking. Yes. It, you know, sometimes you look for a character. You can play. You want. You can decide to play a character even if it's a bad play because you love the character. You can decide to. You feel comfortable in an old play because you've wanted to play that character and wanted to take a shot at it. It all depends on what you need at the moment. Is a new play ever too risky? Sometimes. I don't know too risky, what is it? I mean, all, all productions that are subject to criticism, all Broadway productions that are subject to the criticism of the singular critic of the New York Times <laughs> are... So, yeah. We've reached that part in the program once more. Uh, <laughs> those, those uh, there's, I guess, an element of risk, but there's an element of risk in anything, so it doesn't really matter. Okay. Thank you. We have some twins here. Oh, boy. Go on. Hi, I'm Susan Glebo, and this is my brother, Peter Glebo. And we also represent the American Theater Wing's hospital show program. And, Alan, I have a question for you. I would like to know, after MASH, did you find that the casting agents and the directors stereotyped you as being Hawkeye uh, peers? Or in uh, how no, I didn't. I didn't. I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I got to play so many different kinds of things on that series. I so many, worked in so many styles and I also did several movies while I was making that uh, series that I, that I, I think I, uh, I wasn't uh, typed as, as one person. I did get typed during, that, during a period of time though and I got typed by myself rather than by the parts I played because I was active politically. I was trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed and people decided that I was a certain kind of person because of who they saw in these interviews and making political speeches. And I was fighting that image after a while, rather than the parts I played. Hmm. And then I think it uh, eventually blows over, I hope. I guess it yeah, does. Huh? Thank you. My name is Kathy Gordon. I'm an actress. And um, I also lead courses in uh, career marketing and management for actors. And my question actually follows up on that. I wanted to direct it to Miss Close because uh, as actors starting out we're often told to find our type, find our niche and yet you've been so versatile. You've done everything from theater to movies to thrillers to comedy and um, I was just wondering how you have dealt with that with typing and in terms of deciding what roles you wanted to do and how you've managed to remain so versatile. Um, I don't know. I think uh I don't think I've ever been typed in theater, but I think there was a a danger of that because the first role I did in a movie was this iconic, you know, I, what a What? Like an icon. Jenny Fields is like this white nurse dressed in a uniform, like the ultimate mother figure. And it wasn't until Fatal Attraction that really, that really broke open why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> went from white to black, and I was very happy. So, thank you. Hi, my name is Christine Rocco. Uh, as a student actress, I usually get to do plays that are classics. I was wondering how you prepare for a role differently when it's new, when it hasn't been done before. You go the same way. The best way, I think, is to prepare, for, to prepare a role is to prepare a role viscerally. I think you're going to make the same approach all the time, whether it's um, written in modern vernacular or if it's written by the classical giant. 
I think you're going to still go up viscerally. And when the character is ready to speak, you discover that's how he speaks. It's how you speak, and you have it right away. Although I would say that if I was going to play, if I was cast in a Shakespearean role, I would, I'd get the recordings of that. I'd get 35 recordings of that. You must avoid that in all cases. I, I, for me, that works. For me, it helps. How would you get out of there? Richard? What would you look for? Well, I, I don't know that I could, I could tell you. I don't mean it's not a good idea. I just, what, why, what, why would you, what would you be listening for? Ideas to steal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, there are, there are questions one asks. It wouldn't be the first thing I did, but there are so many questions that remain unanswered that are enigmatic and puzzling and, and frustrating. And I want to know how John Gielgud solved that problem. I want to know how Laurence Olivier solved it, or Richard Burton, or whoever. And, I mean, I have spent my whole life listening to other actors and, quite frankly, stealing from all of them without anyone knowing it because I was internalizing it. And I would do the same thing in Shakespeare. It, it, in a sense, creating a role for the first time allows you much more freedom. But I think it, for myself only, my own eccentric um, process, <laughs> I would be a damn fool not to take advantage of the artists who have come before me and, yeah. you know, give it, just tell me how you did your caches. Well, you can often go down any wrong road, and that may be one. Because what it will do is it will always invariably illuminate the right one. It invariably does it if you should be in the play and that everything else is equal. The play is good and the director is good. If he's but, any but good at all, he will allow you are. to go down that wrong road. <laughs> because it really, truly will illuminate the right one. But, what, but surely the more one knows about it, as, as Richard said, one cannot know too, too much, right. it seems to me. I mean, it's a resource when of I enormous size. When I did Three size. Sisters, I'm extremely familiar with Chekhov's plays. I had in the past seen probably four or five Three Sisters. It so happened that right before doing it, I had the opportunity to see three totally separate productions in different parts of the world. And you bet I went to them. And I came up with a Marsha that was not like any that I saw, but I learned something from everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and, and from learning about mm-hmm. Russia, and from learning sure. about the history of the times, and from learning, reading about Chekhov. I did that and with I think Gertrude, that's fun. because I, I, when I, I thought I'd try to get as many Hamlets that I could see, because I thought, yeah. you don't really remember her then. <laughs> when <laughs> I was a young figure actor, out why. I yeah. understudied uh, people a couple of times, and I found it was very interesting to watch somebody up on the mm-hmm. stage playing my part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and, and I and I would would never wouldn't have played it anything like the way they played it, but I would uh, would not go for certain things that they did that I saw didn't work. I know? think I think in a funny way, I, although we're talking about acting and not about theater, you know the whole idea of theater. One of the best things about the British is their sense of tradition and continuity that allows them freedom to do this. And one of the reasons why we have such enormous problems in building a body of work that we go back to is that we have, in one sense, uh, made it, uh, we've made it inaccessible for a number of reasons. Actors don't go back, writers don't go back, directors don't go back, they don't repeat, they don't do two productions of The Three Sisters in their lifetime. I played Masha, I, I never have to play it again. In the United States, we should play Iago three times, four times, five, and see it a lot. And somehow we make a disconnection between what we do now and what has gone on in the past. And there is something so good about passing down tradition. I was I named th- after the great Lynn Fontaine, I and she showed me the, the, the prompt copy of King Lear, which Ellen Terry played Cordelia, and she I must Ellen interrupt Terry, and you, you must interrupt. Anyway, oh. hand it all down. Go see all the productions. <laughs> Don't interrupt. Oh, you're just wonderful. And once more, I have to interrupt this marvelous panel. 
I can say that you've been listening to the American Theatre Wings working in the seminar. So these are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located on 42nd Street. This panel was on the performance, and I thank everybody for being here, and I thank everybody on the panel for being here, and I wish it could go on and on and on and on. Thank you.